0: Okay. Um, Book of Luke or Gospel of Luke is a synoptic gospel. Um, Synoptic means seeing together because uh, Luke is seeing together with the books of Matthew and Mark. Um, He sees the life of Jesus much like they do. Uh, not all three of them will give every detail, but together they'll present roughly the same thing. The composer Beethoven wrote a piece of music called the Ninth Symphony. Um, it's sometimes called the choral symphony. Choral you could define as singing together. Um, what well, a chorus, chorus does. Now, not everybody will sing every note. In Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the uh, singing actually starts 45 minutes after the start of the music. Um, At first, it's just one voice singing alone, a deep bass voice like an introductory drum roll giving us the tune that we know as Ode to Joy. Um, And at another point, some high, light, excited voices have a turn singing the tune. But it's always a big thrill whenever uh, the whole chorus sings the Ode to Joy together. There are passages like that in the Gospels as they tell us of Jesus' ministry. So Jesus' ministry, that's from time of his baptism to his entry into Jerusalem, um, final entry into Jerusalem. Um, yeah, if we think of Matthew, Mark, and Luke as a chorus singing to us about Jesus' ministry, uh, well, Luke and Matthew have a duet. Uh, they sing together about the Sermon on the Mount or Plain, And Mark and Luke, have a, they sing together about the start of Jesus' ministry. Luke has a bit of a solo in chapter 7. Uh, if we want to hear them all singing together, uh, the parables of the kingdom really stand out, then Mark and Luke have a little duet, and then we start on a big chorus of all three. Um, now in an actual chorus, like, like the piece of music I was talking about, not everybody has to sing every, um, they can sing separately without disagreeing with each other because it's the same song. Uh, maybe with a male or a female voice, high or low voice, uh, or in-between voice. It's, um, but in most choral music, certainly in this one, um, if ever they all sing together, that is a climax. Um, it's a part that the songwriter really wants you to remember, to stick in your head. Uh, all the song has been wakening up your emotions, uh, opening your heart, ready so that you can hear this part, this big, long chorus. And then comes the ode to joy from every voice at once, and get out the tissues. Because if this this piece of music makes you cry, it will likely have you sobbing at this point. Without the big chorus, it would be an entirely different song, an entirely different song. And if you don't like the big chorus, you just don't like the song. It's what the song has been leading up to in the final chorus of uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke about his ministry um, in these three Gospels. We have the next slide. Yeah, in the, the... Christ says something three times. Yes. Next one again, please. Yeah. Yes, he says he will be killed and rise again on the third day. Uh, Christ's prophecies of his death and resurrection are part of his ministry that we can't explain away. Without that, it would be an entirely different ministry. It's what his whole ministry is leading up to. And if we don't like this part of his ministry, we just don't like his ministry. If all the parables and miracles have been wakening our emotions and opening our hearts, then this part will really impact us. Now, Luke actually splits this final chorus in two because he has a big section of his own in between the first two and and the third. He just has a big section of his own there. Um, so he's sung together with Matthew and Mark about the first two predictions and several other things, then his own section. But now in Luke chapter 18, um, after his big solo, Luke finally rejoins Matthew and Mark for a, a really final, final chorus. He's going to tell us about some little children, another couple of stories I don't have time for, and that third prediction. So let's read verses 15 to 17. One day, some parents brought their little children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But when the disciples saw this, they scolded the parents for bothering him. Then Jesus called for the children and said to the disciples, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Thanks, Lee, for sharing that before. That was providential. Recently, I saw an exhibition of canvas photos of famous paintings. They're huge canvas photos, like this big. Um, One was this painting by Harry Anderson called Christ and the Children. Um, I love how the kids are just flocking around him. Kids don't like everyone, same as adults, but when they do like someone, um, a child will just be very open, typically, very open about their feelings. Uh, They just flock around somebody that they love. Like these children are flocking around Jesus, just basking in his company. And Jesus here is not an entertaining clown or a cool, cool dude in a leather jacket, He's just wearing his plain cloth garment. There's a very simple sincerity. And not only is their attention absorbed in him, but his attention is absorbed in them. Now, a painting like this can really help us to reflect on Christ's love for children. It's not intended to be a photograph of the Luke chapter 18 event. If we we look at the Luke chapter 18... That will give us a good foundation for our reflection on his love. One detail is the children's age. Luke doesn't say a crowd of 6 to 12-year-olds only, um, but he emphasizes even infants. I'm sure Jesus maybe talked to 6-year-olds sometimes, but the focus here is infants, the babies. In those days, sometimes parents would bring their 1-year-old child to a rabbi for him to bless them. And this is the kind of thing that these kids' mums had in mind. Um, and when Jesus lays his hand on them, the meaning is blessing. In my present-day Western culture, we don't have a lot of gestures uh, in ceremonies, but we do have some gestures. We shake the hand and we kiss sometimes. Um, and when my brother and father and I visited Manila in the Philippines, We saw this gesture, um, which our hosts told us is called the blessing. Um, A child takes an elder's hand and presses it to their forehead. I love how gestures like this uh, treat the person as special. Like a person's head is special, a person's hand is special. It's not just bumping into each other in your busy day, but stopping to make a sign, a sign of a special relationship saying, I love you, I respect you, you're important to me. Um, laying, uh, for Jesus to lay his hand on these children, it um, was a way for him to show favor to them, show, um, show his blessing to them. The mums would have really appreciated it. The disciples apparently didn't appreciate it. Leave Jesus alone, don't bother him. Nowadays, we both—we all love children much more than in those rough, ancient times. But even if we do, uh, we know about keeping kids out. No babies at the movies. Or even at church, we have a crash for crying babies. Next slide. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that's wrong. It's just that keeping kids out is normal to us. Um, does your five-year-old ever want to go to work with you? probably not allowed there. And not bashing my fellow single people, but often single people will avoid marriage uh, mostly to avoid kids and having kids. The ideal of a kid-free life is so important in our culture that people, many people, even men and women, uh, kill children in the womb called abortion. Notice that it's often... Institutions, agencies, and ministries that will keep kids out. Big champions of abortion are to be found amongst the government and corporations. Uh, universities want young women to stay in class and not go off and be mums. I'm, off, I'm often at Waikato University uh, campus, and there's always this sign outside the campus pharmacy. Free ECPs, free for under 25s, no prescription required. So what's an ECP? It's an emergency contraceptive pill. And what is the emergency? The emergency is just having conceived a child. So this is not contraception in the narrower sense of preventing conception, but it is in fact a form of abortion. Why is it often organizations that exclude children so much, whether it's by an innocent little rule or by murder. An organization is just you and me and some other people doing big things together. And if we all get distracted by kids, unpredictably, we won't get our big project done. Uh, Kids are very distracting and unpredictable. They don't look at their watches and say, oh, I'm sorry I've taken up so much of your time, just contact my secretary and we'll hang out later if it's convenient for you. No, kids just keep on existing and being needy all over the place, unless you have a rule to keep them out. And it's one thing for a kid to distract one adult. The adult may lose some time. Uh, But if an organization gets distracted, an organization needs focus to exist. If the members can't focus on the goal, they aren't working together, and there is no organization. The baby's cry drowning out the movie or the sermon is a symbol of the conflict between children and organizations. And organizations aren't just big evil corporations or corrupt religious hierarchies. An organic farming commune is an organization. Mother Teresa's service to the poor is an organization. Even Jesus' ministry was an organization. The disciples feared a real drain on the Jesus' ministry. How many mums is Jesus going to have to bless kids for? Where does it stop? It's an unpredictable distraction. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, let the children come. Have you ever been called a God-botherer? Bothering God with all that praying and singing? You might say the disciples were telling off the mums being God-botherers. But Jesus tells the disciples off. Uh, He says, let the children come. And this is not because Jesus is a short-term thinker or he doesn't like goals or he's an individualist. Remember, this is part of Matthew, Mark, and Luke's final chorus with the keynote of Jesus prophesying his goal of death and resurrection. The story about the kids adorns that prophecy of a goal achieved. Uh, Luke is quite clear about this. Uh, Chapter 9, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. And Jesus there is echoing a verse of Isaiah, I have set my face like flint. How do we reconcile Jesus' purpose and his distraction? They come together in the kingdom of God. Jesus' death and resurrection brings the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God belongs to people like children. People like this are ears of the children. Uh, children, people like children are ears of the kingdom. This is our reconciliation with children. We join Jesus' group, which is not about uninterrupted movies or classes or sermons or help for the poor. Um, the kingdom of God does not just take power away from governments and rival religions and secular people. You know, take the power away and then use it in the same manner, but just for Christianity. We don't compete with the rich and great people of the world. We don't, play that, we don't even play that game. We use power in a different way, the way of God's kingdom. That means we lift up the lowly. The kingdom way is to care for the lowest. Jesus said in the verse before our passage, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The humble, the lowly, the children are not the distraction, they're the priority. And that's not, not just a nice feeling, that's actually how the kingdom works at the center. At the center of Christ's kingdom is Christ himself, and he humbled himself to death on a cross. He achieved his royal glory by humbling himself. Verse 31, taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus said, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where all predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. He will be handed over to the Romans, and he will be mocked, treated shamefully, and spit upon. Then they will flog him with a whip and kill him. But on the third day he will rise again. Thanks, Ernie, for reading out the passages all about that. That was also very relevant. Christ being willing to die is already humble, but think of how he died. A particularly shameful death. Christ knew that it had to be a shameful death. He says he will be mocked, insulted, flogged with a whip, and killed. Uh, Everything leading up to the killing is not just painful, but humiliating. In fact, it's humiliation more than pain that is the point of insulting, mocking, and spitting. Uh, Once, my sister was taking a Bible study with some new Christian teens from non-Christian homes, and when she covered the part where the soldiers pull out hair from Jesus' beard, one of the girls said, Oh, I've heard that hundreds of times. But this girl could tell that it was a big deal. That's a very degrading and horrible thing to do to someone. Again, Luke, uh, like the other um, Synoptic writers, gives us echoes of Isaiah, who speaks of Christ prophetically in his chapter 50, as the one who gives his back to the beater and gives his cheeks to those who rip out the beard, who hides not his face from shame and spitting. That echo of Isaiah is straight from Jesus' own mouth. Everything that is written about me by the prophets will happen, he says. So we see that the way of the kingdom of God, glory through humility, is also in the Old Testament. Not only is Jesus anticipating it in his ministry, but uh, even in Old Testament times. And Jesus adds clarity to the prophets, listing the literal punishments of the authorities of his day by name. Flogging with a whip. Crucifixion. Matthew uh, tells us Jesus said crucifixion. Crucifixion um, is not only the the flogging and so on, but crucifixion was designed for the humiliation. Uh, That's why the crosses were in public. The idea was that people would see uh, the crucified man and say, I never want to be like him or do what he did. And yet uh, nowadays, now we have a worldwide church and we all want to be like Jesus. So, when Jesus' opponents crucified him, it really backfired on them uh, because it's specifically the crucified Lord, the crucified and risen Lord, that we do want to be like. The Jews, though, did not understand this backfiring. Certainly, they had those prophets' writings that Jesus mentioned, and they'd read the verse about shame and spitting, and, um, and all the other verses, like Jesus says, all that the prophets have written, Major part of prophecy. Some Jews had uh, one explanation for this shame and suffering, and some had another explanation. But one thing they didn't expect was for the eternal, for the everlasting King, to step up and die. Messiah had to have an everlasting reign. Well, that's true, but their mistake was thinking that an everlasting rule rules out dying. Verse thirty-four. Uh, The disciples didn't understand any of this. The significance of his words was hidden from them, and they failed to grasp what he was talking about. Not grasping the cross. In fact, the Apostle Paul says Jews trip up over the cross, something they don't expect to be in their way. As for non-Jews, Paul says the cross looks silly to us. Both Jews and non-Jews naturally reject the kingdom of God, Naturally, we don't even get it. Glory and humiliation are different. Uh, a Death and an everlasting rule are different. Uh, you, you can't be humiliated and get glory. You, can't, you certainly can't get glory by being humiliated. Well, because this is how we think, we can look and look at the kingdom of God and not get it. Today, there are many churches and religions that officially accept Jesus and the Bible but don't get the kingdom of God. One example is known as the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, or Mormons. They officially accept Jesus and the Bible. Um, Mormons have a really special place in my heart. The cross is often before their eyes, the place where Jesus was brought low and lifted up as our hope at the same time. And yet the humility of fully relying on Christ and being unable to save yourself is just unpalatable in this church. The third article of faith is, I quote, Through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. This here is the partial humility of relying partly on the atonement of Christ and partly on your own obedience. In that church, you can say, I rely fully on Christ. You are encouraged to say that. Uh, As long as fully actually means partly. They rely partly on themselves and partly on Christ, so they escape the full shame of being totally helpless. They keep shame at a distance. They stare straight at the kingdom of God and not get it. But just because we're not Mormons doesn't mean we see the kingdom. We could live in a perfect church, hypothetically, We could live in a perfect church and not see the kingdom because we don't receive it like a child because it looks silly to us. We can even be Christians and not lose our salvation but become less like children, as Lee was saying. Uh, It happens when we say, I am not helpless. I do part of the work to save myself. So we reject the shame. But that's not the way we learned in Christ. What we learned in Christ is Christ at the center of Christ's kingdom had the shame of dying for our sins and the glory of becoming our king. And, and we, with him in God's kingdom, have the shame of being totally helpless and the glory of he blesses us. Just picture that, that Jesus is saying, let them come, let Luke come, and you, and you, and you, and he blesses us. We can't say partly helpless, it's fully helpless. And that's why the kingdom of God belongs to people like children. Not the big people, the little people. Again, the disciples didn't understand any of this. The significance of his words was hidden from them, and they failed to grasp what he was talking about. Later on, when Jesus died, the disciples thought all was lost, and they were totally surprised when he rose again three days later, even though he had predicted it. This is kind of weird. And yet it fits with their assumptions. The assumption that everlasting kings don't die. The assumption that, uh, you know, the, that an, a king should not have time for babies. That, uh, but assumptions, they stick in your head. That's what assumptions do. And they can be wrong. It can happen to a Mormon. It can happen to us. Surely the humiliation has to go over here and the glory has to go over there. We don't imagine that they could go together, tightly woven together. We may explain it one way or we may explain it another way, but we always try to keep the humiliation away from the glory. But that Christ, the everlasting king of prophecy, would die in shame and use that to get glory and rise, this is what we need to hear and accept. Jew and non-Jew, from another religion, or born again, the disciples in those days, or us today. It's what we need to hear and accept. And I appreciated hearing it recently in this hymn by George Wigram. What raised the wondrous thought? Should have the kingdom of God's light. What raised the wondrous thought? Or who did it suggest? That we, the church, to glory brought, should with the Son be blessed. O God, the thought was thine, thine only could it be, fruit of the wisdom, love divine, peculiar unto thee. For sure, no other mind, for thoughts so bold, so free, greatness or strength could ever find, thine only could it be. The thought of God, the achievement of Christ, is predicted by the prophets and the Old Testament saints, live in hope in partial understanding and faith. And then it's predicted with crystal clarity by Christ. And the disciples, when they hear it, don't get it because they think about it in the wrong way. Just like when they tried to keep out the children, thinking in the wrong way. In Disney's movie Mulan, the captain gives the new recruits a challenge to retrieve an arrow from the top of a tall post. One tough guy says to the captain, sure, I can do that, pretty boy. And he starts to climb it. But the captain says, Wait, you need two things! And he gives the man two heavy weights. Needless to say, the tough guy fails rather miserably. Soldier after soldier tries, and no one can climb the post with the heavy weights. Finally, in the small hours of the morning, Mulan, in despair about her own weakness, is running away. But then it dawns on her the secret of climbing the post. She loops the weights together around the post to create a strap and uses them as a climbing device to help her up the post. Uh, she, yeah, she is not the first one to think about how she could climb the post, but she is the first one to think of it in the right way. And then the heavy weights become an advantage. She could have climbed the post without. The, she could not have climbed the post without the heavy weights. And Christ could not have reached the joy before him without enduring the shame. And we cannot be exalted unless we are humbled. Another story about sudden realization is in C.S. Lewis's novel, A Silver Chair. Our heroes are walking through the wind and snow, when suddenly one of them falls into a trench. She's unhurt and actually quite happy to be down out of the wind. Uh, The wind just blows over the top of the trench and her companion jumps down to join her. He hopes that the trench will be some sort of sunken road that will lead them where they want to go. They explore the trench, but it just turns a few corners and has a few dead ends, so they just get out and keep going through the snow. And later on, from a height, the girl looks back, and she can see the trenches that they walked through. And she can see that they form a giant letter E engraved in the ground. In fact, a whole message is engraved on the ground for them. Uh, she walked. They walked right past it. In fact, they walked right through it without realizing it. This is, can also give us some idea of how the disciples could see and yet not see their master's prediction of his death and resurrection. And not see it, even when he was crucified. In fact, some of the women following Jesus, even though they too knew the prediction that Jesus had made, uh, they went to embalm his dead body. Uh, Starting in Luke chapter 24, 1. Very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. That's angels. The women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He has risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. Let's go over those angels' words again. Remember what he told you when he was back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. And then they remembered that he had said this. And just like the girl in the silver chair story, they understood for the first time what had been spelled out to them before. Now they understood, as never before, what is at the center of God's kingdom. Christ died and risen. So of course the humbled will be exalted because in, this we, in Christ's death we see the ultimate humbling and in Christ's resurrection we see the ultimate exaltation. Having something spelled out to you but then understanding it much later has a big impact on you. It's the hard lessons that we remember well when we finally get them. It means more to us than if we understand it from day one. It's like, in some serious way, without realizing it, we've been waiting to understand it for a long time. The disciples had to wait a little longer than the women to understand, because they're the ones that went to the tomb, and they seemed more ready to understand. But over the next 40 days, the risen Christ met with the 11 disciples and his other followers many times, and besides the huge surprise of seeing him alive, uh, they got uh, many helpful lessons. I want to go over three. Uh, number one, Christ explained the Old Testament. Uh, for example, Luke twenty four forty four. When I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the Law of Prophets and the in the Law of Moses, the Prophets and Psalms, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Number two, Christ answered their questions. The disciples hadn't always been good at asking questions. In Luke chapter 9, when he uh, predicts his death for the second time, they're afraid to ask him about it. But in Acts 1, they ask Jesus if he's going to start his everlasting kingship yet. And Jesus can clear up for them what's next on the program, the time of the work of his Spirit on earth. Which leads me to the third helpful, well, helpful lesson is a real understatement here. Uh, Jesus sent them his Holy Spirit. As John tells us, the Spirit gave them special help to preach and write the New Testament reliably. And what's the result? The disciples who were so slow of heart to understand the kingdom of God are now full of it. The message of the cross that was against their old assumptions, they're now overflowing with it. Peter says in his sermon Acts 2, God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. For the people Peter spoke to and to us today, we have a double confirmation that Jesus' death and resurrection is a part of history and an act of God. Number one, it was prophesied, and number two, it was a surprise prophesied. Only God can predict, reliably, specifically predict, and then do a huge miracle and a surprise. Of course, a thought of God, a plan of God, would be something different from the way we think. A thought so bold, so free, God's only could it be. Far from being a lie of the disciples, it was something they couldn't imagine till it happened. And surely, if they had understood it beforehand, they would have said so, instead of admitting their embarrassing slow-heartedness. A slow-heartedness which makes the story really weird. You know, why didn't they get it when he told them? And yet Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all agree that Christ predicted three times this, and they make it a big part of their their final chorus. Apart from the parables of the kingdom, there is nothing in Jesus' ministry that... The three synoptic writers are in such perfect chorus about. I do love the unique parts of Luke's gospel, and they are also reliable. Uh, but they they build us up; they prepare our hearts to be moved by this climax that the Son of Man will die and rise again. So we can be sure of the truth of Christ. And if you're sure, and you're a Christian, then we belong in His group. That's called the church. Before we belong to any other organization. We belong in Christ's group. And in his group, there is no conflict between uh, unimportant people and the organizational goal. There is no conflict between uh, children and people who are unpredictable, distracting, needy, and the organizational goal. Because the goal is that the humble are exalted. So, of course, there's a place for children. A place for children. The kingdom of God belongs to people like children. Does that mean that you're going to heaven if you're twelve and under, or you're going to heaven if you are cherished by a gentle and enlightened society, or you're going to heaven if you are cute and adorable? No. The kingdom of God belongs to the helpless. We are the helpless. Uh, we we accept the full shame of being helpless in front of God, not the partial shame that he will save me, and from then on, I will contribute something to my salvation. No, the full shame of helplessness, because Christ went through the full shame of dying for our sins on the cross. And then we are the children, and Christ can say to us, let the children come. The kingdom of God belongs to them, and he blesses us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we just uh, praise you and thank you for what you have done, sending your son uh, to die on the cross. And we just uh, think of these predictions and how deliberate it was and how characteristic of you, Lord, just characteristic of you. And we just want to come in humility and thank you for that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. (music)